0: I had always been intrigued by the unknown, especially when it came to sightings of unidentified flying objects. So when I moved to Chicago in May 2019 to begin my new job as a park ranger, I never expected that I would have my own encounter with the unexplained. On a warm spring afternoon, I was sitting on the front porch of my new home, enjoying the sunshine and sipping on a cold glass of lemonade. My neighbor, Ken Ross, A friendly middle-aged man with a penchant for stargazing was relaxing on his porch as well. We exchanged pleasantries, discussing the weather and our plans for the weekend. Suddenly, Ken's gaze drifted upward, his eyes widening in shock. He nudged me, pointing to the sky. "'Look at that!' he exclaimed. Following his gaze, I saw a strange, black amorphous object hovering in the sky. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before— and it seemed to defy all logic. We watched the object in awe as it moved gracefully across the sky. It was difficult to gauge its size and distance, but it was clear that this was no ordinary aircraft or weather balloon. Ken, being an avid UFO enthusiast, quickly pulled out his cell phone and began recording the enigmatic object. "'What do you think it is?' I asked, my voice barely above a whisper. "'I have no idea,' Ken replied his eyes never leaving the screen of his phone. But it's definitely not something I've ever seen before. As we continued to watch the UFO, a sudden gust of wind caused it to wobble, momentarily revealing a metallic glint beneath its black exterior. It then continued on its path, eventually disappearing behind a cluster of trees. Ken and I exchanged bewildered glances, unsure of what we had just witnessed. We spent the next few hours reviewing the footage, analyzing the object's shape, movement, and size. Despite our best efforts, we were unable to come up with a plausible explanation for the bizarre sighting. In the days that followed, Ken uploaded the video to various UFO forums, hoping that someone might be able to shed some light on the mysterious object. The response was overwhelming, with many viewers expressing their own theories and experiences with similar sightings. As a park ranger, my job often put me in close contact with nature, and I couldn't help but wonder if there were other unknown phenomena lurking in the skies above. My encounter with the black amorphous UFO had sparked a newfound fascination with the unexplained, and I found myself spending more time with Ken, discussing our shared interests and embarking on nightly skywatches. The sighting had left an indelible mark on both of our lives— serving as a constant reminder that there are still mysteries in this world waiting to be discovered. And as I continued my work as a park ranger, I couldn't help but look up at the sky and wonder what other secrets lay hidden among the stars. As soon as I turned 18, my parents demanded that I got a job. When three months passed, I was still unemployed. They went out and did it for me. I got hired at my family's ranger business, supplied places with rangers, and we'd go out and protect the park for however long the rangers' owners could pay. I started in early winter. I was cold all the time. The job I was working at did not start until about nine at night, or at least my ship didn't. I had to work until nine in the morning, twelve hours, five days a week. The pay was alright. It was my first day at a new park. It was a ski resort, and they had hired rangers to act as security. We weren't really as qualified, but my family didn't have the greatest moral compass, so to speak. I started my shift. I talked with the little guy at the front. He said it was slow, not much happening. I was glad to hear this, sitting inside and doing nothing for twelve hours. That's what I'd normally be doing anyway. I went inside and met the guy I'd be working with. We'll call him Freddy. He was reading the paper and drinking coffee. First day? He had asked. Well, I never worked at this place before, but I've been working with Tony for quite a while. It's a good business, I trust him. He responded with a little chuckle and went back to sipping his coffee. Nothing happened for a couple of hours. We sat back and relaxed, it talked about our lives and even got into a funny conversation about my uncle. About three hours in. We heard a loud banging at the door. Freddy got up to open it. There was nothing there, aside from a trail in the snow leading to the door. There wasn't much we could think about it. Maybe a bird or an animal. I don't know, Freddy said, getting back to his seat. I thought it was a bit weird for a bird to slam into the door fast enough to make a bang that loud and still somehow get back up and walk out of sight. I didn't say anything. I just shrugged, whatever. After even more sitting and talking, Freddy got up and said that he was going to use the bathroom. He jokingly asked if I could hold on the fort, then went outside to use the restroom. I leaned back in my chair, quietly singing a Billy Joel song that had been stuck in my head, when Freddy basically kicked the door in, holding his hand. It was cut up and bleeding badly. I did not think to ask questions, so I shot up, ran to the first aid cabinet, grabbing the wrap, and put it around his arm. "'What happened out there?' I'd asked him. He looked at my eyes and opened his mouth. There was another super-loud bang on the door. I rushed to the door and locked it. I didn't know what was out there, but I did not feel like waiting for it to realize the door was open. Freddy was screaming in pain. I wrapped his wounds, but it wouldn't keep up forever. I went over to the phone. I picked it up. It called an ambulance.' I explained that something attacked my coworker. They asked what, I told them I don't know, and they gave me a half-assed, we'll send somebody, and I hung up. They asked to stand in line with them, but I didn't see how that would stop Freddy from bleeding out. Freddy slumped down, leaning against the table in the room. I slapped his face slightly to keep him awake. Freddy, who did this? He cleaned his eyes and couldn't be bothered to keep his head anymore. He was out. His cut was worse than I thought, and the ambulance needed to come very quickly. As I put a blanket on him, another loud bang at the window made me jump. I looked back, and there was a bloody hand on the window. It was a man, and he was begging to be let in. I ran over to the door and unlocked it. I went to the side where he was at, and I didn't see him. Did he run around? I looked down, and my jaw dropped. Right where he was standing was a trail of blood in the stand going around the wall. I broke out of my shock, turning the corner, and there were the culprits and just one wolf, but I know he wasn't the only one there. We both stood there, looking at each other. He snarled, and I gulped. I knew the time it took me to get the door was a lot less than it took him to get to me. I didn't want to risk it, just in case. I kept standing there. He took a step back, Maybe he's leaving, I thought to calm myself down, but he did not leave. He took a step back and, knowing what was coming, I ran to the door. He stopped. He lunged, biting into the flesh of my leg. I screamed out in pain, but at least he wasn't calling his pack or so I thought. He started to tear flesh and I foolishly attempted to shake him off. He was on there, tight ripping. I tried to push him off but his teeth only sunk in deeper. Now I'd put my right hand between my leg and the roof of his mouth, prying his teeth. I limped inside, slammed the door shut. I could see him, these loud bone noises popping and seeing him now stand up on two legs, looking at me through the door. How I was lucky I had survived, I wasn't sure what to do. I was bleeding out pretty bad and the only gun I had was in my Jeep that was left outside. That's when I saw more of these things. They were upright walking wolves, and they were pacing around this place, moving back and forth, looking in the windows, waiting for one of us to come out. I sat there next to Freddy, holding him, holding myself, trying to keep myself conscious. I was bleeding pretty bad, and these things were out there. I counted at least three of them, three of the largest wolves I'd ever seen in my life. What was going on? As I remember things starting to fade, I couldn't tell you what happened next, but the door burst open, and several EMTS rushed in, attending myself and Freddy. They loaded me up on a stretcher, threw me in the ambulance, and the next thing I know, I'm being patched up. After this, I never heard from Freddy again, and I was quickly removed from that location and reassigned to a different one altogether. I was told nothing. I was not allowed to ask questions, and even now, i live with the nightmare. A nightmare of strange wolves, very violent, and had I not made it back inside, I would have been torn to pieces. The sun was just beginning to set as I arrived at the ridge overlooking the lower Molala River. I was a cryptid investigator, and I had spent countless weekends exploring the wilderness searching for evidence of unknown creatures. This particular weekend, I was intrigued by the recent reports of strange rapping noises coming from this area. As I set up my camp, I noticed an unsettling lack of game, especially considering it was hunting season. With my gear ready and a sense of anticipation building, I settled in for the night, listening carefully for any unusual sounds. As darkness enveloped the landscape, I suddenly heard it a distinct rapping on a tree not too far from my campsite. Excited, I grabbed a branch and began to wrap out my own patterns in response. Over the course of fifteen minutes, I heard raps coming from three other locations, each with their unique patterns, a series of two raps followed by a pause, and then three raps, transitioning from a slow to a fast beat. One of the sounds was oddly dull, as if it were made by pounding on a rotten log. Then, just as suddenly as they began, the rapping sound ceased. I continued to rap out my own patterns throughout the rest of the weekend and into Monday, but there was no further response. On my last day in the area, I decided to explore the surrounding woods and came across a park ranger named Lori. I told her about my experience with the rapping sounds and asked if she had any insights or theories. Well, Lori began... I've heard those rapping noises too, and I've always wondered if it might be another hunter or a child playing around. But I've also considered the possibility that we might be communicating with an unknown species. It sounds like something straight out of Star Trek, doesn't it? We both laughed at the comparison, but the idea of communicating with a mysterious creature was both thrilling and unnerving. As I packed up my gear and prepared to leave the ridge, I couldn't help but feel a sense of wonder and curiosity. The rapping sounds remained unexplained, and the thought of an unknown predator lurking in the woods continued to haunt my imagination. As I drove away from the lower Molala River, I promised myself that I would return someday, hoping to unravel the mystery behind the rapping sounds and uncover the truth about the enigmatic creatures that may dwell within the depths of the forest. My grandfather told me the story about the eerie incident that made him quit being a ranger. My grandfather used to work to be a park ranger in Uganda and had many stories to tell us about misbehaving teenagers who thought it was funny to stay illegally in the park overnight, white supremacist tourists who think they could hunt anytime, time, and even indigenous people who believed the land belonged to them. But this time, he told me the story why he resigned from being a ranger, as he thought it was old enough to hear this creepy story, and after hearing it, I'm thankful for him quitting or else I probably wouldn't be here today. One day, he and his co-worker, we'll call him Sam, went out to patrol at night. As they were walking, they saw a very high unusual amount of snake activity everywhere. Ignoring it, they continued on their job, and they had heard multiple trumpets of elephants and saw many zebras running in no particular direction just away from the place that he and his co-worker were going deeper into the depths of the forest. They assumed that it was somebody, possibly teenagers, causing trouble. This made them cautious and alert for danger. They continued going deeper in with their rifles loaded and lamps in front of them. Then they saw a blue shimmery light glowing in the shape of a circle in the forest. It looked to be like a portal. My grandfather had advised his co-worker to examine it, As Sam leaned in to touch it, he was immediately sucked in like a vacuum. Now, I'm not relating Derek to trash, but who touches a portal, after waiting a few moments for Derek to come out, but as expected, he didn't. My grandfather ran away from the portal and towards the cabin of rangers. There, he shared this unnatural incident with the rest of the rangers who slept there. They collectively decided to go check it out the next morning. The next morning, they went to the same place when my grandfather saw the portal. There was no portal and no sign of Derek either. His co-workers then did not believe him and said that Derek must have slipped drugs and hallucinated the whole thing. My grandfather resigned after that. He did not want to see more supernatural incidents happening and also did not want to die. And there was a huge cover-up that happened with Derek and him disappearing. Is he still alive in some alternate universe? Did he turn into something like a ghost? Is he dead? Nobody knows. I remember my uncle telling me stories about his time as a personal bodyguard to President Harry S. Truman in 1947. One story in particular has always stood out in my mind, and it is a story that I have never shared with anyone until now. It was July 1947, and my uncle received a call from the president himself. He was instructed to prepare for a secret mission and to meet the president at a discreet location near the White House. When my uncle arrived, he found President Truman disguised as a member of the press, ready to embark on a top-secret journey. With only a few trusted aides by their side, they snuck out of the White House and headed for Roswell, New Mexico. The President had insisted on visiting the site of the alleged Flying Saucer crash personally to ensure that the incident was covered up from the public. As they approached Roswell, the tension in the air was palpable. My uncle knew that they were about to uncover something extraordinary, and he couldn't shake the feeling that their lives would never be the same again. Upon their arrival, they were met by Major Easley, who had been tasked with handling the crash site. As they stood there... Surrounded by the wreckage of what appeared to be a flying saucer, the president demanded answers. Major easily explained that the situation was under control and that nothing from the crash would remain. In order to maintain the secrecy of their visit, a double of President Truman was used back in Washington, D.C., ensuring that no one would suspect that the president was missing. It was an elaborate operation that left no room for error. As they prepared to leave Roswell, my uncle could see the worry in President Truman's eyes. He knew that the truth of what they had seen would have to be hidden from the world, and that the burden of that secret would weigh heavily on both of them. Years later, my uncle would recount this story to me with a mix of wonder and sadness. He never forgot the incredible events he had witnessed in Roswell, and he often wondered what might have been if the truth had been revealed to the world. As for me... I have carried this secret with me ever since, unsure of what to do with it. But now, as I share this story with you, I can't help but feel a sense of relief, as if a weight has been lifted from my shoulders. The truth about President Truman's visit to Roswell may never be fully understood, but at least now, the story can be told. We live in an older house that my dad remodeled about ten years ago. The house is about sixty years old, and we have had a few over the last year. Or I guess I just notice it more that we have sun and my head stays on a swivel all the time. Just little things like a voice or a noise that we can never figure out what caused it. heard someone cough one night looked at my wife, and she asked if it was me. have had cups fall off the counter. The ones that freak me out is when the dog starts barking and I try to put it up to the fact that labs are scared of their own shadow. But about three months ago, I was up putting my son back into bed. My dog was standing in the doorway wife was in bed. I heard footsteps walking down the hall, and my son asked if mommy was up, so I said yes, then the dog turns to face the hall with teeth bared and barking like she's about to rip something apart, which is odd for her. I look down the hall ready to deal with whatever she is freaking out over and see nothing. I look in the bedroom and my wife is still in bed. I didn't sleep that night or a few after that. Funny part is ever since this ugly stray cat showed up about six weeks ago, it has all stopped. I guess that cats are good for something other than killing field mice. Ronnie Smith, an ex-professional hunter-photographer been to Zaire and Zimbabwe, Africa was among a group of five hunters on the Worms Springs Indian Reservation, Oregon, last June 12-13. They were about seven miles from Blue Lake, hunting south of the road, but away from an area of active, clear-cut logging. The plan was to drive game down a mile-deep ravine by shooting rifles from the top, and three of the hunters would intercept the game as they descended from the ridges. They were watching three groups of elk, And one bull started up an almost non-existent game trail when they heard snorting and noises of something in a great deal of pain. Thinking an archer had shot the very large bull elk, they noticed large, furry feet going way up and over the bull's back, while watching with their binoculars and rifle scopes from about three, four hundred yards at about 1.30 p.m. They watched in amazement as a two-minute battle between a Bigfoot and a large bull elk commenced. Why the Bigfoot picked the largest bull, they don't know, as a smaller bull and several cows were nearby. They had the impression that the creature knew what the men were doing, driving the game, and had selected the ambush site deliberately. The elk had hooked the Bigfoot in the side, throwing him up and over his shoulder. They estimated the Bigfoot weighed around 900 pounds. One of the men had a camera and started snapping photos says he'll bring them in of the badly wounded Bigfoot, Bleeding from the side where the elk had hooked him, the Bigfoot attacked the elk again, digging in with long nails or claws on the right foot and tearing open the stomach area on the elk. Grabbing the elk, it started biting in that area until the elk went down as he held onto it. The Bigfoot tore off the areas it wanted, a rib and ham section, and left holding the elk portion with one hand and its wound with the other. It had curiously turned the elk over, so that the exposed section was faced down to the mud and dirty snow. The Bigfoot was described as having long, shaggy brown hair, a very human-like face, but with very bushy eyebrows and having a skinny waist. He wasn't sure of height tall, with a rounded high crown on its head. They did retrieve the remains of the elk for their own use plus, saving the section of hide that the Bigfoot bit into that Ronnie says he'll bring in wanted money for his stuff skepticals on pleas. When I was 1920, I lived in Maryland and was obsessed with photographing abandoned houses in some of the rundown suburban areas around where I grew up. I got arrested, I aka driven home in cuffs, and slapped on the wrist a lot for trespassing. But I was dumb, and this didn't stop me. So I went to this abandoned house that supposedly a cop was killed in, and now no one lived there. It was pretty odd inside. The floor was a foot deep with just broken furniture and detritus. It was like whoever abandoned the place left everything they owned there, and then kids came in and smashed it all and left it on the floor. Creepy house, but I didn't feel anything oppressive or weird about it. I was there during the day alone, but I didn't get any chills or anything. Took photos of the downstairs and then went upstairs. The stairs were wood and looked pretty secure, not obviously rotted or anything. While I'm up there, I heard a cop car pull up outside and chirp its siren. Two cops came into the house, and I yelled down where I was. One of the cops told me to stay there and started to come upstairs. I had gone up no problem, and this dude was a skinny little rookie-looking dude, so we were honestly probably the same weight, except that every time he put his weight on one of the steps, it broke. Sometimes just a little so he kept going, but twice his foot went all the way through the step. It was the weirdest thing. Eventually, he backed off and I came down. None of the upper steps broke for me and I jumped down over the broken ones. They took me home and it was fine, but that's still the weirdest experience of my life. Maybe something in that house still really hated cops. My mom grew up in a little town in El Salvador called Chalatenango. She would tell me and my sisters this story, and she swears it really happened. All of my aunts that grew up with her confirmed this story also. Supposedly, my mom's friend's father woke up one night at around 2 a.m. in the morning. He was around 27, I believe. It was still dark out, but he had to take a piss. This town is poor, so his bathroom was outside. While he was taking piss, a beautiful woman walked past him. He was a player and went after her. He tried talking to her, but she kept walking away. She eventually stopped and turned around. When she turned around, he was shocked to see that she had the face of a pig. He immediately started screaming. This woke his family, and they went to his aid. They find him screaming rolled up in a ball in the middle of the road. They took him to the hospital. He went crazy... Before he went fully crazy, he was able to tell his family what had happened. My mom's friend told her what had happened to her brother. All of the neighbors that lived around the man that this happened to heard him screaming also and looked out their windows and saw him there. My mom said the ghost creature is called the Siguanaba. She has told me some other crazy ones that has happened to her when she was a kid. And my aunts and uncles have told me ones that have happened to them. Let me know if you want to hear them too. El Salvador used to be very hunted according to my family from there. There is a good-sized field give or take 60 acres along the river just south of the old ford. This field is longer than wide running north to south. More than a few stone points have been found in this field over the years. The entire area to this day is full of deer and turkey and was probably even more so before white men. Heck, I'm sure there were elk, deer, wolves, and bear in abundance in those times when it was all forest. It was for sure fertile hunting ground, and people have been there for thousands of years. To this point, I have been remiss in pointing out the area across the river east of the property as a state game area. My wife's cousin is a solid guy. Let's call him Jay, for these purposes, Jay. He is a hard-working family man, serious when he needs to be, and funny as hell in Deer Camp. I've never known him to exaggerate or stretch the truth. He relates a story when he was in high school, and he and another cousin were tasked with disking the big field along the river. They started on it one weeknight after dinner. It had been pretty dry and things were dusty. The way they went about it was he was on one tractor, slightly behind, to the side of the other cousin on his tractor going north and south. They did it this way so as to cover more ground and get it done quickly. Jay says they were about one thread of the way through the field when the sun began to set. It was then he started to see in the tractor's headlights what he thought were the outlines of figures swirling in the dust kicked up by the discs and the tractors. His first thought was his mind was just playing trick on him so he ignored it until the next pass when he got about midfield and distinctly saw what appeared to be people with long hair dressed in what he described as native clothing. When he got to the end of the field, the other cousin had stopped his tractor and was climbing off. Jay stopped his tractor, got off, and went to see what the other cousin wanted. He said they both stood looking at each for a moment when they both said at the same time, ''Did you see anything weird in the dust?'' at which point they made a joint decision to haul ass out of the field and come back and finish the job during daylight on the weekend. I remember it like it was yesterday, May 9, 1981. The day that changed my life forever. The day I saw something that still haunts my dreams to this very day. The Sykesville Monster. I was walking my dog near the woods of Sykesville, Maryland. When I heard a rustling in the bushes. I peered into the darkness, straining my eyes to make out the figure that emerged. It was taller than any man I had ever seen, and it certainly wasn't human. Nor was it an ape. I instinctively dubbed it a Bigfoot, as that was the only way I could describe the creature before me. In the years since my encounter, I've made it my life's mission to uncover the truth behind what I saw that fateful day. The local police have no records of the incident, and all my attempts to find answers have been met with silence. One day in 2014, I received a phone call that would turn my world upside down. The man on the other end of the line claimed to be a former military contractor who had worked at a secret government facility in Harford County, Maryland. He told me a story of a mysterious building with a heavily reinforced door that had been damaged by something inside... Could it be that the creature I saw in Sykesville had escaped from this facility? Were there more of them? Was this somehow connected to the whispered rumors of a place called the Monkey House? Over the following years, I pieced together the story of the elusive Monkey House near the Springfield Hospital Center. Locals believed it to be a facility where inmates laundered clothing and linens, but the level of security around the building raised more questions than answers. Eventually, the building was razed and a residential community sprouted in its place. I began to entertain the possibility that my Sykesville monster was an escaped experiment from this monkey house or the facility in Harford County. In my search for the truth, I reached out to other witnesses and investigated a surge of Bigfoot sightings at nearby Rock State Park and Gunpowder Falls State Park during the same period. As I dove deeper into this mystery... I found myself in a web of secrets and half-truths, with more questions than answers. The sightings in the state parks, the monkey house, the damaged door in the Harford County facility, were they all connected, or were they simply a series of coincidences? It's been over 40 years since my encounter with the Sykesville monster. I still don't have all the answers, and perhaps I never will. The search for answers continues, and I'll keep pressing on, for as long as it takes because I know what I saw that day, and I won't rest until I find the truth behind the Sykesville monster. One evening, as the sun dipped below the horizon, I decided to go for a hike in the Santa Monica Mountains in Los Angeles. I wanted to clear my head, so I chose a five-mile loop that I could complete before nightfall. The cool air and the sounds of the forest enveloped me as I walked, and I felt at ease, enjoying the solitude of the trail. As I rounded a bend, I spotted another lone hiker approaching from the opposite direction. We were both moving at a steady pace, and as the distance between us grew smaller, I couldn't help but feel a sense of recognition. I squinted my eyes, trying to place the familiar face, when it suddenly hit me like a lightning bolt. I knew this person, he was the actor who played Jane Gum also known as Buffalo Bill, in the movie Silence of the Lambs. My heart raced as the character's chilling persona flashed through my mind, and I couldn't help but feel a pang of fear. I knew he was just an actor, but the character he portrayed had left an indelible mark on my memory. We continued to approach each other, and as we got within three feet of one another, our eyes met. He must have seen the shock and recognition in my expression... his eyes held a sad and resigned acknowledgement. Yes, I'm him. No, I'm not really a serial killer. Despite knowing the truth, I couldn't shake the uneasy feeling that had settled in my chest. I walked briskly past him, my heart still pounding, and resisted the urge to glance back until I was a good 100 yards down the trail. I finally stole a quick look over my shoulder, relieved to see that he had continued on his way just another hiker enjoying the peacefulness of the mountains. The remainder of my hike was consumed by thoughts of that brief encounter. It was a stark reminder of how the characters actors play can haunt them, and those who recognize them long after the credits have rolled. As I completed the loop and headed back to my car, the last light of the day fading from the sky, I couldn't help but feel grateful that I had met an actor who had played such a memorable character and not the character himself. I'm from the Netherlands, and this happened to me. It's quite long, sorry. I hope someone can help me out, cos It's haunting me for years now. When I was younger, I always had this feeling someone was standing behind me, and I saw black shadows every morning. I stopped seeing them and moved on until this happened. I was 15, and I lived in some sort of mental hospital thing. One night, I saw this figure in the middle of my room against the wall. It was very tall, like nine feet or something, very skinny, like you could see his ribs and spine. It had a gray or blackish skin. He had big black eyes and a lurking smile with sharp teeth. He had very long limbs, arms, legs, feet, hands. I remember he had a chain around his neck, and he had little horns. He was very slow. In that time, I was in an abusive relationship, and I was very depressed. I left the mental institute and got back home. It seemed to haunt me every time I got into a new relationship. If I brought my girlfriend home, my behavior changed. I got grumpy, irritated, and if she gave me love, I got terrified my whole body started to shake, and talking was hard when we broke up everything was fine again, and I could leave it behind. After years, I started dating again. But the minute I brought someone home, it was like, nope, this doesn't feel right, and I got this overwhelming feeling again, even with friends sometimes. I tried to block this whole thing, but it's only possible if I stay alone. My sister saw him standing on the stairs to my room one day. She described it the same as how I saw him that one time, but he didn't do anything, she said he just stood there. After a while, I met this girl. She said she was spiritual and locked him in a spell jar after I got a panic attack again. We broke up, and it felt like something was missing. I saw the jar and immediately opened it. What could this be? That one time was the only time I saw him. But I feel his presence, so now and then plus, it's like I could imagine him next to me. Sorry for the long message, I just hope someone can help. I'm not scared of him anymore, Koss. He's harmless so far as I know it's just still in my mind. I had multiple theories what it could be like a lost soul or something. Thank you for your time, and hopefully I get a bit wiser. In a world largely untouched by modern civilization, hidden within a remote corner of the earth, lies a realm of untamed beauty. Towering trees reach for the sky, their leaves forming a verdant canopy that shelters a remarkable array of creatures. This is where my journey begins a tale of dedication, unity, and the unwavering commitment of a team working to safeguard the last vestiges of a fragile ecosystem. I'm Ava, and I'm a part of a remarkable team of conservationists and hunters. We've gathered from all corners of the globe to protect the endangered species that call this remote paradise home. As the sun rises over the untouched horizon, casting its golden glow across the wilderness, we embark on our daily mission. Our partnership is unconventional, bridging the gap between those who have dedicated their lives to preserving nature and those whose skills were once employed in taking it down. Yet, our shared commitment binds us in ways words cannot capture. Together, we work to dismantle poaching networks that threaten the very heart of this ecosystem. The challenges we face are formidable, our adversaries driven by greed and ignorance poachers, armed with weapons that shatter the tranquil silence of the forest, relentlessly stalk these lands in search of ivory, pelts, and body parts that hold no value beyond their commodification. Our enemies are not just the poachers themselves, but the insatiable demand for these illegal products, a demand that stretches across oceans. Our strategy is a careful dance of innovation and tradition. We employ drones to monitor the movements of wildlife. Track poacher activity and document the poaching hotspots. Our knowledge of the land is deep rooted, passed down from generations of hunters who have evolved into protectors. We strategically position camera traps, capturing images of elusive creatures that would otherwise vanish into the shadows. But it's not just about outsmarting poachers, it's about fostering a genuine connection with the animals we strive to save. Each of us carries an unspoken bond with the creatures we've pledged to protect. I remember the time I gazed into the eyes of a majestic tiger, its amber gaze a mix of curiosity and caution. It was a moment that transcended words, forging a connection that fueled my determination. One evening, as the sun dipped below the horizon, casting an array of warm colors across the sky, our campfire became a sanctuary for stories. The older members of our team recounted their experiences, tales of danger and triumph that had shaped their lives. As the stories flowed, I realized that beneath their rugged exteriors lay hearts that beat in harmony with the rhythm of the wilderness. But it wasn't just about camaraderie, it was about resilience. We've faced setbacks that would have broken lesser spirits. We've mourned the loss of some of the most majestic beings to the cruelty of poaching, feeling the weight of responsibility for their deaths. Yet, from those ashes of despair rose a determination to fight harder, to innovate more, to connect deeper. As time marches on, our efforts yield results. The poaching networks we once battled are dismantled, driven to the brink of extinction like the very species they sought to exploit. The animals begin to thrive, their numbers slowly rising from the brink of oblivion. Our triumphs are marked by the haunting calls of birds, the distant roars of lions, and the rustling of leaves as creatures once on the verge of vanishing return to reclaim their place. Our journey continues, an unyielding dedication to a world where humanity and nature coexist in harmony. As the sun sets over the wilderness, casting long shadows across the land we've sworn to protect, I know that our story is far from over. It's a story of unity, innovation, and unwavering resolve as we stand hand in hand with the creatures we hold dear, defending their right to exist in the face of adversity. My husband is a social worker and worked in the Austin State Hospital for a while. He was doing emergency mental health work with the police and their unit was stationed at the hospital. Ash is pretty well known for being haunted. He was working late one night in an office with huge floor to ceiling windows. The office did not have any blinds or window treatments, so when the lights are on at night, the area outside the windows are pitch black. One of the windows was actually a door that was always locked. He doesn't even think it opens anymore because the building is so old. The area outside the windows is a courtyard that is inaccessible because it's sandwiched by other buildings, To get to it, you'd need a key to get through one of the generally never-opened doors from one of the other buildings. Most of these buildings are empty or abandoned. Ash was defunded years ago, so a lot of the buildings are in total disrepair. This particular night, he was alone and got up to go to the bathroom. He was always creeped out by the windows. When he got up to go to the bathroom, he looked out the window and saw a man standing in the abandoned courtyard staring back at him. He freaked out and called security. They searched the area and never found anyone. He told his co-workers and they said, don't ever tell me anything like that again. He used to joke that it was a ghost who would attack counselors, but not social workers to freak out his LPC co-workers. Used to do armed security in Denver. If you are familiar with the Lakewood area, there is a place called Clare Gardens. Next to that is a retirement community called Francis Heights, and connected to the Heights is a nursing home called Dayspring. The place is rumored to be haunted. I was told that it was all built over an old orphanage that was ran by two nuns and a priest who neglected the orphans there, and apparently some of the kids that died are buried there. Some of the ladies on the night cleaning staff were about to quit, because they would clean the glass panes on the windows and doors, then return later to find little handprints on them. The residents would complain that they could hear kids running up and down the halls laughing and playing. There is an indoor gym next door, and my partner and I got bored one night and decided to go investigate to see if anything scary happened. I remember that sometimes in photos, paranormal things can be captured on film that we can't see with the naked eye. Took a random picture of the inside of the gym while my partner was off exploring, and when I looked at the picture, I saw what appeared to be the shadow or silhouette of a person standing there looking down at its feet. Decided not to explore so much after that. I am writing a book about the crazy experiences that happened on the job. People think nothing happens on duty as a -a rent-a-cop. We have our days too lol. I'm a hospital chaplain. I was on call one night. I got a call from a nurse about 3 a.m. saying that she got stuck with a psych patient as they were considered psychotic, but not enough to be placed in the behavioral health unit. The patient was admitted a few days back, but suddenly just stopped talking to the nurses, other than saying, I'm dead and I can't talk to the living." Working in an area with many drug abuse patients and an unusually high amount of psych patients, an event like this wasn't too strange. However, seeing as they were having a hard time trying to communicate with the patient, the nurse was kind of fed up and just called the on-call chaplain to see if I could help. I arrive at about 3 a.m., and the nurse tells me what I just told you. The nurse escorts me in the room, and the patient gives her the same one-liner spiel. Upon seeing me, she said, Oh, you're dead too. I can talk to you. The patient then indicated for the nurse to leave, and I sat and talked for a good hour of this patient's concerns how they were going to die soon and felt unable to talk to any of the living. However, the patient insisted that I was dead too, and that I was the only one she could talk to. Without breaking HIPPA, she gave some general end-of-life concerns one would typically see, with the added benefit of how she was able to get glimpses of heaven, but because of this, could not really talk to the living. Having personally responded to other behavioral health complaints involving religious psychosis, I took this as another typical case. I was able to get the information and communicate the wishes of the nurse, and after explaining the details to the nurse, left shortly that after. I made it back home and am just getting to sleep. As I get a call from the operator saying there is a code in the same room and patient, I just left, and I was asked to come back in. By the time I made it to the hospital, the patient had died. Arguably the weirdest case I've ever handled. The city had always been my domain, its streets familiar like old friends. I was Officer Robert Hastings, a name that carried weight among my fellow officers. My years on the Force had forged a reputation for fearlessness in the face of danger, a reputation that had become part of my identity. But little did I know that one fog-shrouded evening would redefine my understanding of danger and test the limits of my courage. It was a night like any other, routine in its unpredictability. My partner and I had just settled into our patrol car, the engine's hum and the flickering neon lights casting an eerie glow. The radio crackled to life with a call that seemed unremarkable at first a noise complaint originating from an abandoned warehouse in the old industrial district. The place had been closed for years, a relic of a past era forgotten by most. Its walls whispered stories of manufacturing and labor, now shrouded in shadows and mystery. The fog hung thick in the air as we approached the warehouse, its looming silhouette a stark contrast against the dimly lit surroundings. As we drew closer, a sense of unease settled over us, carried by the wind that seemed to carry faint whispers. It was as if the very walls held secrets, and the air itself was reluctant to let them go. My partner and I exchanged glances, acknowledging the eerie ambience that enveloped us. Ignoring the discomfort, we entered the warehouse, flashlights cutting through the oppressive darkness. The beams of light danced along the aged machinery and rusted equipment, creating an otherworldly dance of shadows. We walked cautiously, our footsteps echoing against the cold, hard floor. That's when things took a turn for the inexplicable. Footprints materialized before us, leading to nowhere, as if they were ghostly imprints of a long-forgotten past. Doors slammed shut of their own accord, a cacophony that reverberated through the silence. Flickering lights seemed to respond to our presence, casting eerie glows that played tricks on our senses. Deeper into the warehouse we ventured, the whispers growing louder, almost tangible now. Indiscernible words brushed against our ears, carried on the wind like haunting echoes of distant conversations. The air grew heavy with anticipation, and a cold gust swept through the room, extinguishing our flashlights and plunging us into an abyss of pitch darkness. Panic surged within me, a primal fear that gripped my very core. But amidst the chaos, a sensation cut through an icy grip on my shoulder. My heart raced and I spun around, ready to confront whatever was behind me, my flashlight trembling in my hand. But there was nothing, just the empty darkness that seemed to stretch on forever. My partner's voice trembled as he confirmed feeling a similar otherworldly touch. With trembling hands, we managed to relight our flashlights, the beams slicing through the darkness once more. And then we saw it, a sight that would forever be etched into our memories, haunting our dreams. A shadowy figure stood just beyond the reach of our lights, its form contorted and unnatural, like a distortion of reality. It seemed to observe us, its presence radiating malevolence that seeped into our very souls. As we stepped closer, our flashlights trembling in our hands, the figure dissolved into thin air, leaving behind only an unsettling chill that seemed to hang in the very atmosphere. We stared at the spot where it had stood, our breaths caught between disbelief and dread. We rushed out of the warehouse, our hearts pounding in our chests, our minds racing to comprehend the inexplicable encounter we had just survived. The noise complaint had been forgotten, Replaced by the surreal reality we had witnessed. Back at the precinct, fueled by a desperate need to understand, we delved into the history of the warehouse. What we discovered sent shivers down our spines. The warehouse had once been the site of gruesome murders decades ago, a dark past that had left an indelible mark on the place. As we pieced together the puzzle, my partner and I couldn't shake the feeling that we had crossed paths with the lingering spirit of a victim forever trapped within the walls of that forsaken building. The haunting of Precinct 13, as the incident would come to be known among our colleagues, became more than a story to us. It was a reminder that the shadows held secrets we couldn't always explain, that the night held terrors beyond our comprehension. It forever changed my perception of reality, challenging my courage and leaving me with a lingering unease, a haunting awareness that the line between the living and the unknown was thinner than I had ever imagined. I used to work as a police officer, but I left the job about a year ago to pursue my passion for outdoor activities. So last summer, I went on a camping trip with a group of friends to the Alahi flat near Roseburg. We were having a great time, enjoying the beautiful scenery and the peace and quiet of the forest. But then something strange happened. We were all gathered around the campfire, chatting and roasting marshmallows when we heard a rustling in the woods. At first we thought it was just an animal, but then we saw a huge creature emerge from the trees. It was a Bigfoot. At least that's what it looked like to me. It was about three, four hundred feet away, But even from that distance, I could see it clearly. It was walking on two legs, just like a human, and swinging its arms as it moved. It was a surreal sight, and I could feel the hair on the back of my neck standing up. There were twelve of us there, and we all saw the creature. Some of us were scared, while others were just fascinated by the sight. We watched as the Bigfoot crossed a 600-foot-wide clearing, then disappeared into the woods on the other side. After the creature had gone, half of the people at the campsite left that night. I don't blame them. It was a strange and unsettling experience, one that I'll never forget. As a police officer, I've seen some weird things in my time. But this was something else entirely. I've never seen anything like it, and I'm not sure I want to again. I was bow hunting with my husband father-in-law and fourteen-year-old brother-in-law. We had just set out on our evening hunt, having arrived at camp the day before. We split into two groups, my husband and I headed uphill, my father-in-law and brother-in-law downhill. An hour or so after we split up, my husband and I heard a scream below us and seemingly centered in heavy area of brush or trees in a hollow at the base of the hill. The scream was long and very guttural, The hair stood up on our necks. We went to locate father in law and brother in law. Upon meeting them, they told us that they too had heard it. My young brother in law was more than a little shook up. His dad had left him near a tree to see if he could jump some elk towards him. Both were very close to the sound since they had been downhill from us. My brother in law felt it was very near to him and was very relieved when his dad showed up to check on him after hearing the scream. We spent a little time that night trying to determine what it was. My husband and father-in-law have spent most of their lives hunting or fishing and camping in various areas of Oregon, this one in particular. They hadn't heard anything like it. It was too deep for Cat, and my father-in-law swears it wasn't a bear. I listened to the tape on your site, and although it was similar, the sound I heard was a little deeper and more guttural. I used to work as a police officer. I'm from France, so that's where all this takes place. I quit the job about five years ago. My mother's health was declining fast at the time, and I needed more time to take care of her, and my mother passed away not even a year after that. But I've not returned to the job to this day. I don't plan on going back at all, partly because of the weird things I'm about to tell you about. I was out one night. And the person I was with, well, we were not the best of friends. I felt like he was too aggressive and rude with people. Not the type of person you want to have power over others. I'm basically saying that he was a prick who thought he was better than everybody and everybody made sure to abuse his position of power whenever he could. Nobody really liked working with him. He was every bad picture you could want to paint. Sexist, racist, very homophobic... And a narcissist. Imagine how he acted around me. I knew that he despised me. It called my life choices disgusting multiple times. This might sound really strange, but I feel like everything he said was questionable or downright awful. Sometimes it was his glass falling off the table and breaking. Sometimes it was his car alarm going off. And sometimes there were random noises around him, like random screaming. This one time, we had heard random shots next to us when we were investigating a robbery, and he couldn't help but say some horrible stuff about the black woman and her child living there. I really don't know how to explain it. It's like something was following him around and bowling him. He completely ignored it, though, pretended like we were just imagining things. There was no way he didn't see it. It wasn't karma. It was something bad, like an entity. I knew that it made all of us feel uncomfortable and kind of scared in some way. It was freaky, and that one night I was working with him was the most confusing night of my life. He was exceptionally grumpy that evening and made sure to show me throughout our entire shift. He kept on complaining about his family, his neighbors, and our colleagues and gossiping to my face. I tried my best to ignore him, but it began getting out of hand. He was really starting to piss me off. Throughout the night, there were several small incidents that happened. Some small and not too worrisome, but some were really scaring me. The first thing that happened in the car was the radio all of a sudden turning up in static. He turned it down and continued driving as if he didn't think it was weird. After a little while during one of his obnoxious rants, his coffee cup flew out of the cup holder towards him. This one scared me. It obviously couldn't have fallen out of the cup holder. It was basically launched at him. Again, he didn't seem to care at all and continued talking. After that, it was quiet for a while. Not that many people were out and about on the streets, so the shift was more calm. Everything turned around after that, though. It just got way worse. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw something running from the side of the road right in front of our car. We hit the brakes, and before he could come to a stop, you could feel that we had hit it. What I saw looked like a black cat, so I just assumed we had killed it. I was surprised by him braking. I didn't think he's the type of person that cared about that. You'd almost expect him to drive faster for something like that. We both got out of the car to see what happened, but to our surprise, there was nothing. I was sure that we had hit an animal. We both did and he was just as confused as I was, but said the animal had probably been able to get away from the vehicle, that maybe we had just hit something else, and none of this made sense whatsoever. We got back into the car. We were both very quiet at this point. After a couple of minutes, I almost launched out of my seat. My partner hits the brakes out of the car out of nowhere. We come to a stop, and I asked him what had happened. Now he looks scared I had not seen him act like this ever, so it worried me. He told me that whilst we were driving, he sees a light behind the car, so he looks into the rearview mirror, and what he had seen terrified him. In the back seat of the car, according to him, was a woman, dressed in all black. She stared right at him with a straight face. He said he immediately pushed the brakes, and when he looked back up, she was gone. I could tell that he was not okay at all. As soon as he told me this, I saw somebody standing to the other side of the road from the corner of my eye. I soon turned around to look from there. They were then gone. I cannot tell you how uncomfortable I felt, seeing him being equally as freaked out as I was made it worse. He had ignored everything up until this point, but could not ignore what we had seen that night. We didn't talk about it after. You'd expect something like that to change a person and after a couple of days of him being more quiet, he went back to his old ways. I was tree planting near Smithers, British Columbia, about an hour and a half into the mountains on dirt roads. I tried my best to just forget this incident even occurred, as I simply could not find a way to rationalize what happened. I don't care who believes me or not by the way, but what happened is this. It was almost midnight, and I was trying to sleep in my tent. My tent was near a bunch of standing dead trees that would creak when the wind picked up. A very loud and distinct sound. Now on this particular night, it was dead silent and still. I started to hear sticks cracking and steps being taken that slowly got closer over the course of about fifteen minutes. It was loud enough I was certain there was a bear approaching my tent. It got so close that it had to be no further than fifteen feet from my tent, cracking sticks and padding around the forest floor. I decided to yell out very loudly. Silence. I was answered with nothing but deafening silence. No sound of the creature fleeing or doing anything at all. I sat in silence too scared to move, trying to rationalize to no conclusion. About twenty minutes of dead silence later, I heard the eeriest unnatural, and unexplainable noise. It was the exact same timbre and volume, and just basically the same sound as the trees outside creaking. But instead of being a regular creak, it began, and then held the exact same note of creak for a full five seconds or even longer. It was like an unnatural drone that was obviously not a tree creaking. There was not a hint of wind or any other trees creaking as per usual. I got barely any sleep and the next day was tough, and I just had to forget about it. I didn't ever make the connection that skinwalkers are known to imitate sounds like that until a few weeks ago. This happened in July 2022. If anyone has had a similar experience or has any ideas of what this could have been, I'd love to hear. Let me begin by saying that I am currently on mobile and this may or may not end up in a confusing format. Another important thing I should add is that my parents still, to this day, do not know about the events that are about to unfold, and only three people know the very brief summary of this story. Congratulations on being the first to know. At the beginning of my fifth grade year, I was ten years old. I lived in the north suburbs of a major city in the U.S., and it was a generally peaceful and quiet town. Not much happened in my neighborhood, and there were plenty of kids, but I had always been a bit of a paranoid kid, and my parents wanted to keep me on a short leash. That being said, I always had a cell phone and a walkie-talkie on me at all times. Cell phone to help contact anyone by any means, and a walkie-talkie to contact my parents very, very quickly. Early September, circa 2007, I was always riding my bike through my neighborhood and on a bike path that wound around a forest and through a park near my house. Off of this path, there was a cute little creek that, on this particular day, I decided to stop and watch. I threw some rocks in and listened to the noise it made and watched the wildlife. It hadn't been more than ten minutes when a middle-aged Mexican man had rode up on his bike and attempted to strike up a conversation with me. Hey, What are you up to? He asked in a very thick accent. I was a very awkward and shy little thing. I was always very cautious of interaction, and I was far too naive to understand what was going on at this point. I thought that maybe this guy was a ranger, and I was about to get in trouble for disturbing the wildlife, so I very awkwardly responded, oh, uh, just throwing rocks in. I love watching the ripples." and he nodded his head, and we stood in silence for about a minute. Now the alarms in my head start going off. If he was a ranger or any authority figure, a head nod shouldn't have been a response or something along those lines. He motioned his hand in the direction of the forest, began to mount his bike, and in his thick accent said, Follow me. I wasn't dumb and my heart was pounding. I quickly pulled out my cell phone and pretended to read a text from my parents and said that I had to go home. He insisted I go with him and tried to prevent me from leaving, but I pedaled away down the bike path. As stated before, I was no dummy. Knowing fairly well, I knew this creep could easily follow me home. I didn't go to my house. This particular path ran east and west and ended about one block east and was right between two houses. The very last house on this path on the north side belonged to my best friend at the time, Damaris. I rode the path to her house and hurriedly knocked on her door. I didn't have the heart to tell her what was going on, so I told her I was out and just wanted to play. She was letting me inside when I looked back out and noticed the same man in a truck cruise by, smiling and waving. It shook me up quite a bit, but I figured that, since this wasn't my house, he'd never see me again. Damaris' house had a glass storm door on the outside of the actual door, so they'd leave the actual door open, but leave the storm door shut so no one could get in, but we could still see out. Imagine our surprise when, not even an hour later, the same man with the same truck cruised by slowly again, but this time with a buddy, another middle-aged Mexican man. They both smiled, but the original man was pointing me out to his buddy. I was really panicking at this point, but kept my cool as to not freak out Damaris and her family. That night, I had stayed over at her house past dark, so my parents would have no choice but drive to pick me up instead of ride home alone. Things returned to normal for about a week. I hadn't seen that man or that truck at all, and I don't think he ever did see my real house. But when school started the next Monday, things got weird. I was at my bus stop before anyone else because I was a punctual little shit. There it was. The same truck came rolling by. The same tan-colored, rusty, ugly pickup truck with the same man. I began to panic, but I was completely unsure of what to do. I just kind of paced and back further and further away from that side of the street. As he neared the stop sign, I could tell he wasn't paying attention to me. I don't know if he was ignoring me or just didn't recognize me or what, but he wasn't paying attention to me. The windows in his truck were down and I could smell the inside. It was disgusting. There are no words to describe the putrid odor that leaked through those windows and spilled for 20 yards to my nostrils. I noticed that inside he was doing something strange with his hands. It was a strange juggling motion with his hand and there was a very strange white liquid being sprayed around in the front seat, but he ignored me, and that's all that mattered to me at that point. I was safe, and that's how things carried on for about two months after that incident. Near the end of this man's strange daily drive-by rituals, I remember saying something vague to a teacher about it, and I had been asked a few questions and then left alone about it. The next week, as suddenly as it had began, the drive-by stopped, I was absolutely relieved and happy that I didn't have to see this man ever again. But there was something uneasy about the way everything seemed to stop. It wasn't until I was about 14 or 15 that I had learned what it was that he was doing in his car every morning. He had been masturbating every time he had passed me. I don't know whatever became of that man, nor do I care. I am led to believe that he was found out and locked up in jail for the rest of his life and I certainly do hope that is the case. Whatever it is that happened to him, I hope it was awful. It was a bright summer day when my extended family and I decided to go hiking on a trail at the Breaks in Virginia. We had planned this trip for weeks, excited about spending some quality time together and reconnecting with nature. The weather was perfect, and spirits were high as we embarked on our adventure. As we hiked deeper into the woods, we chatted and laughed, enjoying each other's company. The trail was beautiful, with lush greenery surrounding us and the sound of birdsong filling the air. It felt like we were miles away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. After hiking for a couple of hours, we came across a large rock that appeared to be the site of some sort of ritual. The scene was eerie, with strange symbols and what looked like remnants of candles scattered around. I'm not a religious person, but even I couldn't shake the feeling that there was something deeply unsettling about the place. It reminded me of the Blair Witch Project, and I couldn't help but feel a shiver run down my spine. Feeling unnerved, we decided to abandon our hike and head back to the road as quickly as possible. We hurried along the trail, eager to put the unsettling scene behind us. It was then that my mom's cousin's husband revealed that he had a GPS satellite tracker on him, which we could have used an hour before to avoid getting lost. As we followed the GPS, we realized that we had somehow managed to hike all the way to the Virginia-Kentucky state border. The realization was both amusing and alarming, as we could have been lost in the woods for much longer if not for the GPS. When we finally made it back to the road we came across a park ranger who was patrolling the area. We shared our experience with him, describing the strange ritual site we had found. The ranger listened carefully, his expression growing increasingly concerned. "'I've heard rumors about this sort of thing happening in the area,' he told us. "'But I've never come across it myself. "'It's important that you reported it "'so we can keep an eye out for any suspicious activity.'" We thanked the ranger for his help and made our way back to our cars, relieved to have made it out of the woods unscathed. As we drove away, I couldn't help but feel grateful for the presence of the park ranger and the GPS satellite tracker that had guided us to safety. That day, our family hike took an unexpected turn, but it brought us closer together as we faced the unknown. The experience taught us the importance of being prepared for anything and the value of looking out for one another. And while the memory of the eerie ritual site still sends shivers down my spine, I'll always remember the adventure we shared and the bond it forged between us. It was a warm summer day, and I had decided to spend it hiking at Gales Creek Park, west of Banks, Oregon. The park was known for its beautiful scenery and challenging two-and-a-half-mile trail. As I set off on my adventure, I couldn't help but feel excited about exploring the lush green surroundings. About an hour into my hike, I came across a woman and her daughter who seemed to be intently examining something on the ground. Intrigued, I approached them and introduced myself. The woman, Hannah Horvath, explained that they had found some strange hair near the trail... She showed me the whitish hair, which could have belonged to a sheep or a dog, but there was something odd about it. Hannah told me that she and her daughter had been out hiking the trail several times before and had encountered some unusual phenomena. They had heard strange noises, found possible Bigfoot tracks, and even saw a large dropping of 14-inch paddy nearby. They had also noticed a tree, about 8 inches thick, that was broken off 5 feet above the ground. As we continued discussing their findings, park ranger Ralph approached us, curious about our conversation. We filled him in on the details, and he listened intently, nodding thoughtfully. He revealed that there had been other reports of strange occurrences in the park, and he was investigating them. Ralph examined the hair Hannah had found and told us that it would be sent for analysis to determine its origin. He also took a look at the photos of the possible Bigfoot tracks and the broken tree. Though he remained skeptical, he acknowledged that the evidence was intriguing. With Ranger Ralph's encouragement, Hannah, her daughter, and I continued our hike together, keeping our eyes and ears open for any further clues. As we walked, we shared stories of other strange encounters and speculated on the possibility of a Bigfoot living in the park. By the end of our hike, We hadn't found any more evidence, but we had formed a bond over our shared experience. We exchanged contact information and promised to keep each other updated on any future findings. A few weeks later, Hannah called to let me know that the hair analysis had come back inconclusive. The mystery of the strange hair and other oddities in Gales Creek Park remained unsolved, but the experience had sparked a fascination in us all. Even park ranger Ralph admitted that he couldn't entirely dismiss the possibility of something extraordinary living in the park. The experience at Gales Creek Park left me with a sense of wonder and curiosity about the world around me. Sometimes the unexplained can lead to the most unforgettable adventures and the most unlikely friendships.